My connection to this story is that my dad was born and raised in Olivet, Michigan. Additionally, I think my connection to this story is that I, I think that was the, the condition of my heart for most of my life. Self-absorbed, considering myself first and others second. And that is until the day that Jesus began to start to chip away at that thing in me that demanded that everybody was around to help me, that everybody was around to meet my needs. My wife uh, is a blessing to me. She's not in here, so I feel free to talk about her. Now, this is one of the tricky parts, and I've learned this over the years of being a pastor. On one hand, I, I talk about my wife positively, and then sometimes there are people in the church that go, oh, Carolyn, she's perfect. Uh, the reality is, is I'm not allowed to talk about my wife's flaws in front of you because it's like uh, discouraged in many places, especially amongst the women of our church. My wife has her flaws, but I am thankful for her when I think about some of the encounters I have in marriage counseling myself. Now here in California, I haven't had too many opportunities to do marriage counseling because we're a young church and we just got started with it. When I was a pastor in Florida, it was, pretty, it was pretty frequent that I would sit down with young couples and have to talk them through the hiccups in their marriages. And uh, Carolyn and I have been married 23 and a half years and we've had ourselves a couple of hiccups along the way. And one of the things I'm grateful most about my wife is that at no point did my wife ever tell me, you better change and become everything I need you to be or I'm leaving. Strangely, I've actually dealt with couples where one or the other was saying that to their spouse, you're not meeting my needs, and if you don't start meeting my needs, I'm gone. And I found it odd because it's such the antithesis of the gospel. So if you're a Christian and you're in a marriage and you're saying something along the lines of, you're not meeting my needs, you're not everything I expected you to be, so I'm out the door, understand that this is the exact opposite of what we're saying the gospel says, which is, God is going to love us unconditionally and that is what is going to make us change and do things that would please and love him. This is our message. This is we, a message we reiterate again and again at our church and it is the a message of scripture which is that people don't change under a cloud of guilt. People don't change. Their hearts don't love because they're being pressured into doing so. Uh, last week we talked about Advent peace and the essence of that message was what, Marshall, uh, what Walter Marshall said in the, his book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And I quote, You cannot love God if you are under the continual secret suspicion that he is really your enemy. You simply cannot love God unless you know and understand how much he loves you. In the gospel, you can come to know that God truly loves you through Christ. And when you have this assurance... You can even love your enemies because you know that you are reconciled to God. You know that God's love will make people's hatred of you work together for your good. Last week we spoke of Advent peace. Today we talk about Advent love. And oftentimes when preachers talk about love, we, we even pray for it or we talk about it out, outwardly as a congregation. Matt um, even sang songs and prayed that we would love each other well. You know, that this is the goal, that we would love each other well. And yet today's sermon is going to be a step back where it's the step before we're able to love each other well. We're going to look at Simeon, a character in the New Testament that I love a lot because 
um, I learned from Simeon some pretty amazing things about patience and waiting. We also see in Simeon's Advent experience how not so much he loved God, but how much God loved him. This is the essence of Bible study, incidentally, if you've ever been somebody that said, you know, I probably ought to read my Bible, or you've heard somewhere that Christians are supposed to read their Bible, and Christians are supposed to read their Bible, but the reason you're supposed to read your Bible is not so that you can impress God with how diligent and disciplined you are. The purpose of reading the Bible is to discover more of who God is. It's not a book that you read, and I know because so much, of, so much of my life was spent trying to find little principles in the Bible that would help me be better at what I do, or things that I thought I was supposed to not be doing, and now I look and there's guilt, and that makes me change. In reality, the Bible is God's autobiography. It's something we read to discover who he is and how he's dealt with people, and very importantly, we read to find out how he wants to deal with us. And certainly we're to love God. But in order for us to be able to do this, we must know and see his love for us. So today as we look at Simeon's life, I want to point out a couple of things about love as it's presented in this Advent story. And the first of those things I'd like to point out is that Advent love boasts faithfulness. It boasts of it. It brags of it. It talks about the fulfillment of a long-held promise. From verses 25 through 29, we read, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. There's so many things densely packed into this passage that if I seem scatterbrained today, you'll have to forgive me because I just see so much for us in terms of our comprehension of God's faithfulness and our ability to trust him. When I think about Simeon, like the rest of Israel, he had been waiting for the Messiah. They had been waiting for seven centuries. And for us, that's an almost incomprehensible figure because it, it, at best, we're going to live seven decades. Well, some of us will have great genes and will live much beyond that. But 70 years is a good long life in our estimation. So the idea of comprehending waiting for something for seven centuries is just off the charts crazy. Additionally, I think that we can look at the life of Simeon and say the promise of God to him was he would get to see the Messiah before he died. Now, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing because that's kind of sort of like telling you when you're going to die. You know? And so he seemed pretty excited to see the Messiah, but for me it would be like, oh goodness, the Messiah showed up. I guess I'm dead. I mean, it would really be a, 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 a moment of pause and caution for me. He's living his whole life, though, in anticipation of this. He was waiting because he said, now I can die in peace. This is an old guy. He had patiently waited. So think about the thing in your life, and all of us have one thing, at least. Some of us have more. We're saying, if this could happen, if this promise that's perhaps given to us in Scripture, maybe you even have a Bible verse you can lay on and go, this is God's promise to me. Perhaps You've been the person that has been the beneficiary of God showing or revealing to you in some way something that's going to transpire in your life. Perhaps you're a business owner or you're waiting on a relationship 
that has yet to come. You're perhaps in many cases, like my poor soul wife, you're waiting for your spouse's behavior to improve. You're waiting for them to become more loving or more caring. Imagine waiting your whole life and then right on your deathbed it happens. This is effectively what's going on. He is waiting for this great promise. It's defined his life. The Lord has promised something to me. I'm going to get to see the Messiah. And Simeon at the death's doorstep gets to see this. Now, on one hand, it's a cause for celebration. But on the other hand, I think about Simeon. I think about how much he struggled and how much he had to wait and how is that even possible. And I see how it was possible for him to wait for, as the verse says, the consolation of Israel. We sing about Israel's consolation. Effectively, what that means is the the fulfillment, the redemption, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel under this messianic king that was to come. What was empowering Simeon to do this was the presence of of God's spirit. And you see it in a couple different places. In verse 25 and 26, it says, Simeon, uh, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And then it goes on to say, it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. And then again, moved by the Spirit, he was directed into the temple courts. And so you see a man who's living his life not saying my whole life is going to make sense to me when I see the Messiah, when the promise God makes to me comes true. He's saying, I'm living my life today, enjoying my life in the presence of the Spirit. See, he was able to wait and patiently wait because his life was not about the moment that God would fulfill this promise. His life was about right now walking in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is what enables us to be able to wait patiently because it's in the presence of the Spirit of God that we are able to hear of the love of God. Intimacy with God is needed for us to be able to know that He will be faithful. See, we look at the Advent love that that Simeon is experiencing and he's waited this entire lifetime for the fulfillment of this one promise and it comes to fruition and we all go, God is faithful. But what I am fascinated by is the length of time that is required to be patient as you wait for God to bring about this thing in your life. And the presence of the Holy Spirit is what enables me to be able to rest in peace. And at the end of this, he says, Lord, as you've promised, now you may dismiss your servant in peace. You see, his soul was at rest already, and now he's going to go meet the Father. For you and me, it's about maintaining what we talked about last week, this Advent peace throughout the year as we apply it to these areas of our life where we're waiting for God to move. For me, I know the capacity I have to enjoy the love of God today, to really bask in the love of God today is proportional to how much time I spend enjoying the presence of God's Spirit. Thinking about that today, He is enough for me. I don't need whatever it is I thought I was going to get. I don't need whatever it is that I think God has for my life. But today, there's a moment for me to enjoy the presence of God. And that is what enables us to be patient while we wait for His fulfillment of things. But be sure of something. The Lord is going to fulfill his promises. 
One of my favorite verses, it's not going to be on the screen behind me, but Numbers 23, Jesus, I mean, the scriptures say, God's not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not fulfill? Does he promise and not fulfill? Does he speak and not act? Numbers 23, 19 is ingrained, but I forget it. And so I have to daily remind myself of this. God is faithful. One of the ways you see God's faithfulness in love is the actual faithfulness of Christ's family in fulfilling the law for him. You can look in verses 20 through 24, and I'll put the verses up real quick for you from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. On the eighth day when it was time to circumcise him, his, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given before he'd been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, and as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping what is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now Luke's account does something really fascinating in Luke 2. It shows the fulfillment of the law. See, in Galatians 4.4, the apostle Paul told us, that in order for Jesus to be perfectly substituted for us, in other words, in order for him to be sacrificed in our place, he'd have to be perfect and not just never make any mistakes. He would have to actively go and achieve the checklist of things that were in the Old Testament, a, a checklist that is phenomenally comprehensive that we would ever have, never have any chance of doing perfectly. And yet in his life, they practically, it worked out that his parents cooperated with God and he was able to fulfill every stroke of the law. D.A. Carson speaks of Luke's account showing that Mary and Joseph have actually fulfilled three Jewish legal regulations in one trip to Jerusalem. Jewish law required that the birth of the, after the birth of the male child, that the mom would be quote-unquote unclean for seven days and then had to remain home for another 33s and then they had to, on the 40th day, go and get a purification sacrifice. Additionally, the law required that the firstborn child be redeemed and all of these firstborn animals were considered sanctified and consecrated to the Lord and in Jesus' case, they were, because he was their firstborn child, they had to bring an offering to the Lord and then Mary does this other thing akin to when in the Old Testament Hannah presented her son Samuel to be a priest to the priest and king. She brings Jesus to say he is going to serve the world. He, I'm going to turn my son over to the Lord. And all three of these things take place in one shot. Faithfulness is a part of what Christ does. He faithfully fulfills the law. He faithfully prepares and gives and meets all of our needs in his timing. We read about this faithfulness all the time. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. You go to a wedding, you hear this verse, but verse 8 is my favorite in this bunch. Love never fails. The love of God always comes through. And we read that in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, and the fruit of the Spirit, my my favorite verses of this whole section are verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So even within the context of all the evidences of God's love, the fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence, we see again and again that faithfulness 
is this concept that Advent trumpets, it boasts of it. It says, God's love is faithful. You may be having to wait, but he will faithfully love you and take care of you. In our passage from Isaiah 49, the prophet writes, Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion says, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Uh, There isn't a week go by where I'll walk past a really attractive young person who has decided, and this is no commentary on tattoos as a general rule because I know a lot of you have them, so don't get me wrong. But every now and again, I'll see somebody who's a really beautiful person and they've got this horrific tattoo on their body. And I go, didn't you think about that before you decided that, don't you realize that this is permanent? Now, again, I realize I'm over 40 and this is kind of the attitude of just about everybody in my generation. It's like, don't you know? And then, of course, all the young, cool people go, yeah, and that's cool with me. And I'm like, okay. So I look at this and I go, There's something about this that whatever you pick to tattoo on yourself, you have to really believe in this because in the absence of some spare change to burn it off later, this thing is with you for life. Think about what that will mean to you when your body is wrinkly and crinkly. And and for me, I, I, I imagine that this is a part of what the Lord is saying to his children. I don't love you just a little bit. I have effectively written you on the palms of my hands. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, when you engrave something into your body, there's absolutely no way, shape, or form to get rid of that. A tattoo, you can actually go to the tattoo removal. There's a great business, a a huge industry starting now, tattoo removal. You can't get rid of something that's been engraved on your hands. Scars last forever. One of the fraternities at Florida State University and Florida A&M University is a a fraternity called Omega Psi Phi, and it's a historically African-American fraternity, and one of the things they do, and there's sort of an an homage and, and and really an honoring of their forefathers who were enslaved in America, they brand themselves, and you may say, that sounds insane. Well, to be a part of their club, now not everybody has to do this, but one of the things they willingly do is they take a coat hanger and they form it into the shape of an omega, which is one of their Greek letters, and then they put it on the oven and heat it up on a, on a coil oven or in a fire, and then they brand their arm, and it burns it, and it leaves a permanent welt. And so sometimes you'll see it on football players Uh, who are on television. So if you're ever watching TV and you see a football player do this with his hands, he's making an Omega, he's part of the Omega Sci-Fi fraternity. Of course, they're much more muscular when they do this, and so it's a much more attractive pose. Um, But the, you know, if you ever got to see them without a shirt, they'd have this thing on. That's permanent. This is what Jesus is talking about. That his faithfulness to us is, is not like somebody who's saying, I'll be there if you perform. He's not saying, You get your stuff together or else I'm leaving. He's saying, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to pursue you. But faithfulness is only a characteristic we can appreciate 
if you're needy and wanting. As long as we imagine that we are self-sufficient and that all we need for life and success lies within our natural selves, God's faithfulness isn't going to be valuable to you. It isn't going to be amazing. It isn't going to make you think, I want to love God because He's so faithful to me. He's so kind to me. As long as we continue in our self-dependency, as long as we tend to see the things that we get and do as things we've produced by the sweat of our brow and the work of our hands, as long as we don't continuously in the presence of God thank Him for everything we have, including the abilities to do what we do that seem to produce the resources that we need to live, we will not appreciate God's faithfulness. The essence of God's love is that it is not conditioned on anything in us. It is faithful. He is faithful in spite of our performance. Hence, there's no need to fear judgment or abandonment once you enter into relationship with God by His grace through Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was uh, many consider a 20th century martyr, but he was killed in his attempt to assassinate uh, Adolf Hitler. If you don't know much about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's, he's worth reading, worth studying. He says this about our season. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Uh, another person that was regularly on YouTube this past year, and you're about to get all of the best of 2013 television specials, which I incidentally really like. One of the ladies who made, uh, one of the young women who made news this year with a viral video was a teen named Olivia Wise. Uh, she was dying. She had an inoperable brain tumor. And as CNN reports, the teen who covered Katy Perry's song, Roar, uh, she passed away. Olivia gained fame uh, in, uh, in the last weeks of her 16-year-long life when a Katy Perry she recorded in a Toronto studio became a viral hit online. The teenager said that she didn't want people crying at a funeral, but that they should celebrate her life. Her version of Perry's hit, Roar, which she recorded in September, after learning there were no more treatments available, drew the attention of Katy Perry. And uh, she actually posted a YouTube tour where she said, I love you, and a lot of people love you, and that's why your video got to me. It moved everybody that saw it. You know, we, we enjoy these moments where people are surviving and fighting. I, I call them survivor stories. They're narratives that make us happy when we see somebody who has an inoperable brain tumor say, I will not give up. We were just celebrating, those of us who are sports nerds, uh, Jim Valvano's uh, legacy, and they have a series of basketball tournaments every time this year, and Jim Valvano's Cancer Foundation. Uh, the, the narrative, the, the byline of, the, of that foundation is, don't give up, don't ever give up, because Jim Valvano swore he would fight to the death well, the thing we don't like to talk much about, while we enjoy those stories and that sort of inspiration, as much as we may, apart from scientific breakthroughs or divine intervention, we can't simply will cancer and diseases away. We need God. We need other people. And God's faithfulness is enjoyable to you and me. It's something we will celebrate this Advent if we can continue to see ourselves as needy and wanting. 
And you can see the rub in our culture here. Because if you're not willing to characterize yourself as needy and wanting, if you're constantly in the I'm gonna he- you're going to hear me roar category, if you're watching Tony Robbins videos and you're getting excited about all that's in you and you start to actually think that I'm doing this on my own, then the concept of God's loving faithfulness is, is going to be somewhat uh, empty. And really, nothing that would inspire you to love him. Tim Keller says this about our faith. Every other religion and philosophy says you have to do something to connect to God, but Christianity says no. Jesus Christ came to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. This is the essence of Christianity. This is the essence of Advent. We are waiting because we are a needy people. We are a people needing God to be faithful. And that's not only okay, it's something to rejoice about because God has promised he will be faithful. Advent love boasts of God's faithfulness. And very briefly, the second thing I'll share with you today is this. Advent love brings fullness. See, and this is where it's not just theoretical. That life in the Spirit, life walking in the presence of God, does fill a void that our lives so desperately need. It's a need to be sure that we are loved. A fullness that comes from knowing that God has engraved you on the palm of his hand, that God has promised you that he will meet your needs in Christ Jesus, and that he's going to do it. This great need for us is to say we are valuable because we are the children of God. In in Simeon's story, he prayed, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Real briefly, I think it's fascinating that Joseph and Mary marveled at this. Now, you gotta understand, we've talked about what Joseph and Mary have already experienced. You know, Joseph had an encounter with an angel. Mary's been impregnated by the Holy Spirit and had actually the angel of God talk to her too. Why would they be marveling at anything at this point? I mean, would anything stun you? You'd think it wouldn't, but I think this testifies again to our continual need and God's continual kindness in showing us himself and his love. He didn't just say, okay, I'm gonna tell you and Joseph this one time, and that's it. He knows they're fallen. He knows they're broken. He knows that they need him to re-enter their world and remind them again and again, hey, I really got this. That whole angel thing, you didn't dream that up. This is really happening. And for us, some of us come to faith at young ages, high school students, college students, maybe even as a child, and there are times of doubt and fear in your life and you wonder, did I make this up? Are the psychologists of our culture right? Did I create this kind of this rubric for living and I've kind of made myself believe the Bible is God's word and I've kind of had to create this paradigm to live within so that I can function psychologically and emotionally? You, you can at times come to a place going, you know, my faith seems systematic and theological, but do I really know this? And God wants us to have it be more than just that. He, I remember one of my professors, R.C. Sproul, who's admittedly, and I think anybody who studies theology would say he's probably one of the great thinkers of my generation. And I remember Sproul in one of our classes saying that he was at the, in the front row of his church and his pastor was talking about the love of God in very simple terms. And Sproul said he began to just weep 
Because while he gets it on a theoretical level, he understands God's justifying him by faith. He understands that you and I are made right by the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us. He knows all these terms about how you and I are okay with God because of this great legal forensic arrangement that God has made on our behalf. There still is a component in all of us that says, I want to experience the joy of knowing that God loves me, that his disposition towards me is kindness his disposition towards me is patience his disposition towards me is faithfulness and it is the experience of this that brings fullness twice Simeon reaffirms that he not only has seen his salvation but that Jesus would be seen by the sight of the nations the presence of the spirit in his life has produced this peace, and it is a peace that helped him wait, and the peace that comes when he sees for himself the salvation that has come to Israel and to us in Jesus, the promised Messiah. It is this fullness that is promised to us in John 10.10 when Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and might have it to the full. John 10.10 was not a verse given to prosperity theologians to make them convince everybody that they're gonna have a lot of money. You could have no money and still no fullness in Christ because it's about his presence in your life. It's about him letting you know that you're valuable to him, that it's not just legal and justifying. It's his disposition towards you as one of great care and concern. As Simeon's every need was cared for along the, along the path to where, to where he would actually see the fulfillment of the promise God made to him. As Mary and Joseph were given these marching orders and this amazingly challenging burden in their time, all along the way, he very sweetly and kindly came in expressing his love to them and telling them, I'm gonna amaze you once again. This isn't a God who is wanting you to just shape up and get it together He's one that wants to extend to you more kindness than you can imagine, more dispositional love than you can potentially even think of. You know, no matter how many gifts we get for Christmas, the irony of it is, is that we, we always want more the next year. And, and so at some point when I started having kids, I realized that Christmas wasn't about me anymore because I buy my own gifts. I literally shop for myself. I don't know about you all, but... Uh, you know, we have this really weird arrangement in my family um, where Carolyn and I know exactly how much money we have to spend on Christmas gifts. And so she and I will go, well, you shop for year 150 and you, you know, that's our limit. And then you give those gifts to me and I will wrap them and I will find my presents and I will give them to you and you can wrap them. And then Christmas for us is about the kids who don't buy us anything. But we, we, we really enjoy engaging our kids. We really enjoy loving our children. And it gives me great joy to watch my kids open their gifts. You know, now, I think that as I get older, I imagine my kids will start dipping into their piggy bank and buying me something, and maybe I'll get some return to the day of, you know, exactly being excited that I'm getting a gift from one of my children. There is more joy for me in giving away presents than there is in getting presents at my house. This is akin to what Paul said to his friends when he was leaving Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He said, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. 
In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, there is something that is really, really wonderful about the Christian life, and that is that the joy of the gospel is emptying ourselves of ourselves and allowing the love of God to fill that space. And it's only when we let go of our strategies to be loved by others, it is only when we let go of our strategies for fulfillment in life and say, Jesus, I'm gonna let you fill that space, that we ever get to a place where we say, you know, there's more joy for me in giving away this stuff than keeping it. It makes sense to me, because if you're living, if my life is consuming then there's never going to be enough stuff for me. Everybody that wants something from me is taking something from me that gives me life. And if I've given everything away and the Father comes and he fills me and fills me and fills me again, then whenever people take stuff from me, they're not taking the essence of what fuels my life. So rare is it that I've been able to consistently live in there but it was this way that enabled us and enabled Simeon to continue on for years and years and years and years, patiently waiting for the promise of God. He was experiencing the fullness of God already in his life. It was in putting the special needs student first that the young man in the video we showed today could see the love of Christ. It changed him. He saw what selflessness did. And if we want to love others, we need to first allow ourselves to be loved unconditionally and sacrificially by the Lord. Friend, if you don't get dispositionally, if you don't get experientially, if you've not seen for yourself like Simeon has the salvation that is ours in Christ, then it is unlikely that you're going to be able to replicate that and give it to others. If you find yourself being selfish, if you find yourself being distant from others, unable to give love, unable to give care, it's a re- there's a really good chance because you've never allowed yourself to be full of God's love for you. Oswald Chambers says this, and with this I will close. No love of the natural heart is safe unless the human heart has been satisfied by God first. The, tragedy of hu- the tragedies of human lives can only be solved by an understanding of the one great fundamental truth that Jesus Christ alone can satisfy the last last aching abyss of the human heart. Let us pray that this Advent season we would know, we would see with our own eyes the joy of the salvation that God has promised to us. Let us pray. Lord, today we've talked about your love we would certainly like to love you better. We certainly pray, God, that we would love others better. The mission of our church is to love people enough to share your word with them and love people enough to give and see the culture around us changed. But the reality is, Father, that until we are overwhelmed, until, like Mary and Joseph, we are amazed at what you're doing, until we, like Simeon, cry with joy, at your faithfulness and your love and your care and concern for us. Until that becomes our life, we won't be people who are passionate about sharing that and giving our things to others. 
So we pray that this season you would renew us, you would revive us in what it means to be loved by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.